You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you now, if you will, to join me in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we will begin where we've left off there, uh, and we will continue our journey through the Gospel of Matthew together. If you don't have a Bible, then I want to invite you to, to consider a couple things. Maybe you'll get access to Matthew chapter 5 through a device that you may have, but there's also a paperback Bible. Bible that's underneath the, the chair in front of you and that tray. And if you get one of those blue paperback Bibles, you can make your way to page 472 where you'll find Matthew chapter 5. The, the big numbers being the chapters and the small numbers being the verses. And, and what we have here is the very first of the five prominent public discourses of Jesus. That is, it's known historically by the church as the Sermon on the Mount. That is, it, this is the, the first and most significant of the preaching texts that Jesus uh, that we have recorded of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And you'll see parallels in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 4. But, but what we have here is compiled what I would simply describe as the greatest sermon ever recorded. That's it. And that's a really encouraging thing because it doesn't matter what I do, uh, I, could, I could just bomb and, and be really discouraging or distracting for the next 45 minutes or so. Uh, but we're going to read still the greatest sermon. It'll still make it a pretty, pretty profitable time. Uh, and so this is, this is what you need to know about the Sermon on the Mount and these first verses called the Beatitudes. These are what scholars would say are the most highly exegeted passages in the, in the Bible and in any, in any text in any, in, of any known language in the world. That is, more people and more scholars have read and studied and tried to think about what these things mean than any other text ever written. It is not an exaggeration to say that we are about to read the most famous and impactful words in the history of ever. And so, like I said, it's encouraging because um, on one hand, we're going to dig into something that no matter what I say, you're going to hear the words of Jesus in a more impactful and spirit-filled way than any other thing we could read. But on the other hand, it's a pretty humbling thing, right? If, you're, if, you, if you would call yourself a Christian, uh, then you probably have some favorite pastor or author or something. And, and I promise you, they've written something on the Sermon on the Mount. They have published something on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and, and you've heard something on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I, I, I was a pastor of an established church, preached through the Sermon on the Mount, did a pretty terrible job. But, but again, I read the Sermon on the Mount, so you can't go that wrong, right? And so like, this is the most highly examined, memorized, and expounded upon text that's ever been written. And so we're, we're humbly jumping into a text here that, that is going to have more and more than we can even fathom. But in some sense, we're, we're jumping into something that Jesus wants us to hear powerfully, something that was so otherworldly, something so amazing that, that in many ways it, it changed everything. These words were remembered and they reverberate through history. Now remember, Matthew is teaching us about who Jesus is, and he wants us to see Jesus for who he is, and like the disciples we saw last week, drop everything to follow him. Give up everything to experience healing in him, to walk in his footsteps. And Matthew is introducing us to Jesus in such a way that at the end of this, we see Matthew chapter 28. These are the last verses of Matthew's gospel. Jesus comes and says to them, "'All authority and in heaven and on earth has been given to me.'" Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So notice that this, this trek that we're on together in, God, in the Gospel of Matthew, this, 
this thing that Matthew wants you and I to see is that Jesus is a king. He's a Messiah who comes as a king. And his kingdom is upside down. And the kingdom he brings is not like the tyrannical or, or problematic or sinful rulers that you and I have experienced and have studied throughout history. This king is perfect, righteous, and good. And to be in his kingdom means to experience all the benefits of his care, all the, all the benefits of his reign and rule. And so last week we saw that the, as he went public, as he began his public ministry, he began preaching, and, and the general theme that Matthew tells us is the theme of John the Baptist preaching, that is to repent, that is to turn your life in a different direction because the kingdom is at hand, right? The king is here and his kingdom has come. Now live accordingly. And so what we find in the teachings of Jesus are the teaching of the king, the words, the authoritative words of the king. In fact, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are known as the Sermon on the Mount that we'll be, we'll be walking through over the next several weeks. And in the, in the guts of it, in the very middle of them, we find the, what we know as the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, how we ought to pray, right? How now we to, are to interact to God now that we are under the reign of his son Jesus. But even the last words, look at these, in, in the Sermon on the Mount go like this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, right, this these prominent, well-known, life-altering, world-changing words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? What were they so astonished about? For he was teaching them as one who had what? Authority. And not as their scribes. And so Jesus is telling us about the kingdom. His teachings point to what it's like to be a part of his kingdom. So the foundation of his teachings on the kingdom start with what we know as the Beatitudes. Now I'm going to try as hard as I can for our time together to call them blessings. Uh, because the word Beatitudes, um, if you're not a Christian, not familiar with Bible language, um, that may be not helpful. Uh, the word Beatitudes, it's not some alliteration. The, the attitudes, you ought to be. That sounds fun. It's not true. It's simply the Latin word for blessing is beatus. Okay? And so this is a really fancy way. And since, and if you want to talk Latin, you can come afterward. Let's get together and we'll nerd out about Latin. But for the rest of us, these are blessings. These are blessings. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, Jesus first, his first discourse and preaching, the most powerful words that have ever been spoken. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
I want to invite you into maybe a parable. Admittedly, it's an American parable. But I want to invite you to summon your sanctified imagination and imagine with me, if you will, a scenario. Imagine that you have been elected president of the United States. That's right, you. The majority of your American peers have entrusted right, the executive branch to you. You have won the election. You are the president of the United States. And, and then the first thing that you do as you step into that office is what's known as an inauguration. And in that moment, you will be invited to speak to a group of people, many of them who voted for you and support you, but also many of them that didn't, many of them who work against you, and, and you will have an opportunity to give what is known as an inaugural address to talk about what it's going to be like under your administration, albeit an American parable. Obviously, this parable wouldn't work maybe somewhere else. But in essence, this is what Jesus is doing. There are five major discourses that Matthew tells us about, and this is the first one. And in it, we find the Messiah, the King, and his inaugural address. These are the first words that he speaks to describe to many who around him were disciples and followers, who, who genuinely desired or at least curious about following him, and he began to talk to them about what his rule and reign over all things would be like. But there were also many people listening, and I want to encourage you, maybe if you're in this room and you're not a believer, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe, maybe this, is, this is you discovering or investigating becoming a Christian. I'm so glad you're here, because Jesus also spoke of his kingdom to people who were not a part of it. Many who even, might like, maybe like you, are opposed to it, sickened by it. And so Jesus lays out in his inaugural address what his kingdom will be like. Now, every time Jesus speaks, every time he teaches, he's doing a number of different things. So being that this is one of the most, I don't know, expounded upon texts ever, I think maybe the way I can summarize it in my own mind and encourage you to think about it is I want us to see three things in, these lists of, in this list of blessings. The first thing I want you to see, I want you to see how these blessings are beautiful. But then secondly, I want you to see how these blessings are in fact awful. And then lastly, I want you to see how these blessings are put into effect or how these blessings are accomplished. So those are three things. I want, you to see, I want you to see how these are beautiful. I want you to see how they are awful. And I want you to see how they're actually fulfilled and accomplished. So anytime that Jesus is speaking, anytime that he's teaching, he's doing a number of things. He is saying something about his kingdom. He is saying something about what it means to be under his rule and his authority. We saw this last week that, that, that immediately we bristle at that. And I shared this with you at the very beginning. When he talks about a kingdom, uh, if, again, if, if, this is, if this is an American parable, kind of our, our, the ethos, our, like, our political historical lineage is we don't like kings. That's a big thing under the, under the surface, right? Like, Americans don't agree on much, but like down deep, we're like, definitely don't like kings, right? And we will throw tea into the Boston Harbor to prove it, right? Because, right? 
Give me liberty or give me death, right? So, so we have to just admit that for what it is. That's going to be a, a, a barrier. That's going, to be a, that's going to be a hardship for us to embrace what it is that Matthew is telling us about this good and perfect king. But mind you, remember that baseline narrative for us that we don't really like kings. It's based on the fact that we think we, some kings are not that good. And so Matthew wants to introduce us to a perfect king, a righteous king. And that's exactly what I want you to consider. Is it possible that a kingdom ruled by a perfect and majestic and righteous king could be a good thing? And so when Jesus is teaching, he's telling us about his kingship. He's telling us about his kingdom. And there are many layers to that. On one hand, as we see, there's the beauty of it. There's, this is what it looks like. This is what a great life would be like. In this sense, that here's what I want to commend to you, at least with respect to the, the, these blessings, these beatitudes, is that the teachings of Jesus describe a perfect way of living. They describe perfection. They describe what it would be like if, if, if Jesus ruled over everything and sin and corruption and injustice were completely eliminated if they were removed from the world, but also if they were removed from our own hearts. Now, this is interesting because this means that many scholars disagree on what the Sermon on the Mount really is. Is it a story about something that won't be like, fulfilled until, you know, until Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom? Is that what it is? It's just, it's a, in this sense, like a, it's, a, it's lore. It's a legend about something that might be to come. It, in that sense, an eschatological. That is, it is about the end and not really about now. Some scholars say that this is, in, in some ways, these are the rules, right? These are the, this is the, the ethics of a life lived while following Jesus. There are many different things, but I, I want to encourage you, the reason there's such disagreement is because there's a sense in which there's an element of each of these in them. This is a description of a perfect life. This is a description of what it would be like if Jesus truly reigned in your heart and mind and in the world. And that is something, in fact, that won't be fully realized until Jesus comes back to make all things new. And yet at the same time, it is a description of what we begin to experience now as we have seen Jesus as our true and good king. So the content primarily in this teaching and in the next four is not necessarily about right, the, the words and meaning per se. It, the message isn't just its content. It's about the speaker himself. Matthew it makes us like to see this with some, with some cues, right? Even before the blessings start, he says, he sees the crowds and he goes up on the mountain and then he sits down. There's at least two different things going on here. The first one we talked about a few weeks ago. The first one is that this Sermon on the Mount is for us a fulfillment of the longing of the people of Israel to have a Moses who would deliver them from oppression and from the bondage of sin. And so Matthew is saying like, remember that time? When Moses went on a mount and came back with a word from God, right? You're like, that's what this is. But he does something interesting that, that a rabbi about this particular time would do, but it's also a picture of the king. Did you see what he did? Right, like right now, just speaking, like you're sitting, I'm standing. But notice what Jesus did. It says a mountain. I mean, after all, this is Galilee. Mountain here would be kind of like a mountain or a mountain in Galilee, but a lot like maybe a mountain in, in South Dakota, right? Like, it's big, but, I mean, there, there are bigger ones, right? It is an elevated surface. Think amphitheater, right? Think a surface maybe where, where he would be able to be seen and heard with a crowd of people. Thousands we even find out later at some of his teachings. But what does he do? He sits down like a rabbi as a, as a kind of a deference or respect, but also, did you get it? Like kings. 
He sits down like a king and his subjects gather to him. So already Matthew wants you to see, like, this is, no, this is not just a lesson. This is a word from God. This is a word like Moses, a, a new deliverer, an, an, a new leader has come with a, an eternal word that will change everything. And yet this eternal, or this, this, this new king and, or this new, this new deliverer is a king who comes with an eternal word of deliverance and he reigns over his people, but he draws them to him in kindness. And the first thing, I mean, think about that. The first thing that this, that this king offers is blessings. Now, much can be said about that alone. That, that word blessing is difficult to, it's difficult to understand or translate. Now, you'll remember this as we've walked through the Psalms. The first Psalm is very similar here. And, and in many ways, we kind of see like, a, a, uh, like a, a, a reenactment or a recapitulation. I hate to say that again. Why did I do that? Of, of the very first psalm, which starts with, uh, as an introduction to all the 150 songs, what word? Blessing. Blessed is the one, right, who does not stand in the, in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, or does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers, right? So the blessed man doesn't actually do anything. It's just, his blessing actually comes from where he doesn't walk, where he doesn't stand, and where he doesn't sit. And what does the blessed person do? That blessed person meditates. He meditates on the law of God. He delights in it right? And so in, in a similar fashion, Jesus begins this teaching with that same picture. What does it mean to be truly blessed? Now, that word blessing is interchangeable with the word happy. That's a problem. That's a, again, that's a, this, is, this is a Western problem, but, but we tend to think of happiness as such a, a fleeting emotion that it keeps us from seeing what the psalmist and now Jesus wants us to see. What it really means is to live a fortunate life, to be fortunate, some scholars would even say to, to live a life that, that you would emulate. So when he says blessing, I, I, I agree with a couple of scholars here. The best word that he would be like, the best English analogy I can give is the word congratulations. It really is. It's as if to say a, a declaration of happiness. Similar that you would say, you know, a declaration of happiness when something good happens, right? Happy birthday, right? Happy Father's Day, Mother's Day, right? Whatever that might be. You, you, you declare this happiness, and, and, and in essence, you're saying, what a fortunate thing for you. What an enviable thing for you. Isn't it great? Congratulations that you're in this state. And so in some sense, Jesus' list of, blessing here, list of blessings here could, could be just called the congratulations. And that's when you begin to realize how otherworldly they are. Because what does he congratulate these people for? What does he say about the person who is enviable, who's living a life worth emulating here? To see that for what it is, I think you first have to stop and consider what you've been congratulated for. You have to stop and consider what kind of a life you envy. What are the lives that you emulate? And I bet on that list of things that you wish you could be, of things that one day you wish someone would congratulate you for, are lists of accomplishments, achievements, right? Gifts and amazing things that come to you. Things that you would describe as blessings. But notice what Jesus describes as the truly, the truly blessed life. Congratulations to those who are poor in spirit. Congratulations to those of you who mourn. 
mean, just think about that for just a moment. These aren't the kinds of blessings that you would wish on someone. I hope you have a blessed day. I hope today you've experienced lots of mourning, spiritual poverty, and maybe even some persecution for doing the right thing. Right? Already, you think, that, that is not how I think about blessing. That is, and this is, this is the kicker, that is not how I think about happiness. So I want you to see, it's, it's so hard, like if, maybe if you're, if you're raised in the church or if you've been in Christian circles, you, you get kind of the Christian lingo. There's a sense in which you were the, you're, the, the worst, you're in the worst spot this morning because this language seems familiar to you. But if you're in this room, maybe you're not a believer. Maybe this is the first time you've ever read the Bible and ever read the, even like heard the Sermon on the Mount. You're in the best possible spot because you probably see how absurd that is. And if you don't believe me, just try it. Before you leave today, try one of these blessings out on someone in the room and just see how it goes. Hope you have a blessed day. Hope it's marked by mourning and sadness. I hope, man, today, I hope you have a spiritually empty day, just impoverished in spirit, just bankrupt. So you begin to see that this kingdom is upside down. It's not like any kingdom you've ever seen. So I want you to see the beauty in that. I want you to see how it's beautiful. This really is the description of a perfect way of life. It's perfect because it doesn't conform to what's broken in the world by sin. In many ways, then, what we see here are the expectations of the kingdom. You might call them the norms of the kingdom, right? Maybe this is... Repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. This will mean a lot for some of you. This is the new normal in light of Jesus coming as king. A kingdom that he says is not of this world. A kingdom that he says will have an authority like you have never seen before. So we have a coming word from God like Moses to deliver people from the oppression of sin. And it's coming out of heaven as if to say for all people, there's this kingdom that's come And the people who experience the reign of this king are blessed, happy, fortunate. They should be emulated. There's someone you would want to be like. They are to be congratulated. And that is a beautiful life. Right? Isn't that beautiful? If you live a a highly esteemed life, people wanted to be like you. And people people ascribed uh, your traits in such a way. So let's just walk through them. I want to, as best I can, kind of illustrate this beauty. We're probably going to run out of time, and, uh, and it may just be like, well, and that's it. Let's pray, right? But we'll try. So there, in essence, there are eight here, at least eight that are blessed are the, and they describe some person. Now, right off the bat, you have to realize it's not describing eight different people, right? And, and there's many indicators for that, but the main one, if you'll see it, the very first one, right? If you, if you think in your head, a list, two columns. There's a list of like congratulations and blessings, right? Happy are these kinds of people. These people are poor in spirit, they mourn, they're meek, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're merciful, pure in heart, and they're peacemakers. And then lastly, they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. But on this side of the list are evidently the benefits that come from these kinds of blessings, right? They will, they'll have the kingdom of heaven, they'll be comforted, they'll inherit the earth, they'll be satisfied, they'll receive mercy, they'll see God, They'll be called sons and daughters of God. And then it says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, so you think on the first list, this list of congratulations, on the second list, why you would be congratulated or emulated for being this kind of a person who, who is living in the norms of this kingdom under Christ. 
And so you'll see why this isn't describing eight different kinds of people in the kingdom in the first and the eighth one. Did you see it? It's the same words. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But then he wraps it up again in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for what is theirs? The kingdom of heaven. So it's not describing like multiple different people. In that sense, it's describing two different kinds of people, right? Or two different traits, and yet the same person because they have the, in, the same inheritance, as it were. And then the last blessing is, is completely different. It's as if Jesus speaks abstractly, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, blessed are these people, and then he leans in close in verse 11, and he says, blessed are you. Not just those people, but you. So the very first one, it says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They will, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Remember this language, kingdom of heaven, same as Matthew, or same as Mark and Luke uses the, the phrase kingdom of God, but Matthew is an educated Jewish man, and so he wouldn't use the ineffable name of God as a, as a way of respect for his Jewish audience. So the very first blessing he says is that you will be poor in spirit. Now, elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament and the New, you find kind of this paradox, a blessing of what it means to be old or to be poor, also old, because a blessing that comes with being old, it's a crown, that too. That's not what I meant, though, right? There's a blessing that comes with being poor. In some strange sense, you are not caught up in, you're not controlled by the trappings of this life, right? In that sense, they don't Like, you have the freedom to own things they don't own you. And there's something that comes with wealth. And this is important because we live in in, in the grand scheme of the world and in history. We are in a very prosperous time and place. We are wealthy. But a whole lot of problems come with that kind of prosperity. But he's not only talking about material wealth. He's talking about, in this sense, a spiritual economy. Not just poor, but the way that there's also blessings that come from being poor in spirit. So in, like spiritually speaking, you are impoverished. You are, in, you are bankrupt. You have nothing to show for yourself. But I want you to see the blessing that comes from that. After all, at the heart of that kind of poverty and, and wealth and that paradox of being a godly or ungodly poor or godly or ungodly wealthy person, we saw this in Nehemiah, lies a profound insight. There's a, a proud self-reliance that comes along with prosperity. And it always leads to for, forgetfulness and ingratitude and even worse, entitlement. It's the poor who has less that's more likely to be aware of things as blessings because there's so few and far between. It's the prosperous who will begin to see things as things that you earn and even worse, Things entitled to you. And so having a poverty in spirit means that spiritually we have no merit or value. Think of it as like our spiritual bank account is empty. And I want you to see the first aspect of a perfect life. A perfect life in a new kingdom. The the people who are spiritually impoverished, what it means to really be born again and living a new life in this new kingdom, this new creation come in Jesus, are the kind of people who can stand before God nothing. I don't mind making a, a, an abstract distinction here. The, the, the religions of the world ultimately have, have kind of a, a final story in which you, you stand before God or your creator or your force, and you have, in that sense, you have some karma stored up, right? You have, or maybe you have these things, these, these obediences that you, that you have brought along with you that show just exactly what you've got. 
I mean, after all, you're not perfect. No one would say, oh, I've done all the good things, but, but we'd also say, like, but, but, but I have done some. There's a sense in which we look in the mirror and we go, like, I, I got something. I have some value. But this new kingdom and what it means to be born again and have new life in this new creation under this new king is to stand before God and say that you are spiritually empty. Being poor in spirit is adopting a posture and attitude that spiritually we are without merit. We have, in this sense, no spiritual currency or equity or capital to put towards our spiritual debt. And think of this, even, even the things we might think are good before God's righteousness are, are disposable. Right? Because after all, I mean, it, it's one thing to say before God, well, I've done these bad things, but, but it's another form of, of pride to say, but I have done some good things, but here's the thing you and I both know. Even your motives for doing those good things were bad. They had more to do with how you appeared to other people. They had more to do with fitting in. They had more to do with getting some sort of advantage. The most powerful experience that a Christian can have is the knowledge that we will stand before God and say, I have nothing. I have nothing to commend myself to you. And yet know that in that spiritual poverty, what do we have? The whole kingdom. Do you know the blessing and happiness of admitting your spiritual poverty and bankruptcy? One of the hardest things for many of you, the thing that will, the thing that will keep you from the grace and joy in Jesus is that you have to come to Jesus with an empty hand. You have to come to Jesus with nothing. And for many of you, that's too much. To come to Jesus and say, I have no righteousness of my own. I have no merit of my own. And to know that is the place. That spiritually empty, bankrupt, impoverished place is the place where we experience the joy and blessing of what? The whole kingdom. Next, he says that, it, he says that there's a blessing and happiness. So congratulations for those who mourn. Well, it's one thing to like know that you're spiritually empty, but if you think in terms of mourning, spiritually mourning is, is that you, you see some sort of like irreparable situation. You see what's broken. If, if feeling your poverty spiritually is one thing, then, then that may be just a symptom of what's really under the surface, which in, in terms of the Bible is what we call sin. And so what does it mean to have a spiritual mourning over the source of things, so the source of brokenness, the source of injustice and, and hurt and harm in the world. Well, we already heard this in the last chapter, and we hear it for the rest of the New Testament. It's called repentance. To genuinely look at what's broken and mourn because you know that it is wicked, awful, and evil. That's what it is to mourn. We saw this in, in the book of Lamentations in 2020, a way of coping with what's broken in the world. And, and we actually find that that's a, a form of worship. And part of this beautiful, perfect life Jesus is calling us to in his kingdom is to be honest about what's busted and broken. It's not wrong to cry out to God and wish he would change things. In fact, what's wrong is to look at what's broken in your heart and in the world and be like, that's fine. I don't care if others are hurt by that. I don't care if there's pain and suffering. But there is a happiness 
a blessing, a congratulation that ends in, did you see this? They experience comfort. Have you mourned spiritually? Have you looked at the world and seen the weight and the consequences of sin and been honest about the sadness and despair that it brings? Because again, this paradox, right? What, what a wild place. That place of great, that great hopelessness in the face of sin is the beginning of what? Comfort. Deep comfort. There's a third aspect of it. He says that there's a blessing that comes from being meek. Now, there are a couple of words in, in, the, in this list of blessings that are frankly just words we don't use. Right, so it takes a little work. I, I don't, that isn't a part of my vocabulary. That may be something we, we should repent of. Right? Maybe, maybe that's a word we should use more. Uh, maybe we should encourage and right, emulate meekness more. But, but there's, this, there's this kind of there's this assumption that like, what it means to be meek is to be kind of like mousy and, and withdrawn. And, and, and in essence, what meekness is is weakness. But, but that's not meekness at all. Meekness is not the same as weakness. Meekness is is power that's restrained. Weakness is the poverty of power. There is a difference. Now, there's a place, I think, in in all these, there's a place for all of this and to celebrate all of this in this kingdom, but at least Matthew remembers something profound here, and Jesus wants us to know that, like, meekness is not weakness. It's to be humble. It's to be gentle in your dealings because you yourself have dealt with an almighty God. Right? If, if being poor in spirit is realizing you have no spiritual merit before God, and, and if mourning realizes the depths of sin, then meekness realizes that the problem and the depths of all those things isn't just out there. It's in here. Meekness is when you see the depths of this sin, you mourn it because you know how close it is to your own heart. There is a problem, and that problem is sin, and it ought to be mourned. But meekness comes when you, when you stop saying the problem is out there, and you realize the problem is me. Being, me. being meek is realizing that even if you were to solve the problems, the flaws in you would show up in your solution. Ever seen those? Right, this is the mythology of the Greeks, that, like the, this, this idea that the gods you know, laughed at human beings because every time they tried to solve a problem, they created a bigger one. Right? Seen one of those recently? Right? In the world? I don't know, maybe in your own life? Like, man, I thought that was going to fix it, and we're worse off. Meekness is when you realize that the solution is beyond you because the problem is within you. And meekness comes from knowing that you yourself are flawed. Maybe think about it from the other direction. Does asserting yourself really give you the happiness you want? I mean, you know, when you like throw off meekness and you just tell people off, when you just tell it like it is, right? And many of you are like, I would never do that. I only do that in my head. I just fantasize about it, right? Does it bring the joyful life you want? Has it ever? And there's a freedom and beauty in the the life of a meek person. Because dominating doesn't actually get you happiness. Dominating and asserting yourself doesn't actually get you what you want. And the meek life 
is, is the life that has been set free from the need to. I don't know, in the last couple of years, have you had some opinions? Have you had any opinions in the last couple of years? Have they been in conflict with maybe some opinions that are around you? Yeah. Have you noticed how you have felt the need to express them? Have you realized what a prison that is? The truly blessed and congratulatory life is the person who's free from having to assert themselves. I don't have to weigh in on everything. I don't have to chime in on everything. Because after all, if I had the keys and I was driving and I fixed everything, then all my flaws would, would be the next generation's problems, right? Think of the freedom that could come in a truly blessed life that you don't feel the need to pick fights. That you really do trust that the power of Christ is made visible in our weakness, such that as Paul would say to the Corinthians, you can brag about it. Yeah, I'm a, man, I'm a mess. Isn't Jesus great? Right, I love that. Like, that's, 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 that's this beautiful freedom, right? It, it frees you. Man, it frees you in criticism. Some of you heard me say this, but like, I quote kind of some, some old dead heroes. It's like, yeah, when someone criticizes you, you can kind of respond like, you don't, have the, you, don't, you don't have the first idea about how, how awful I am. Like, like, hey, man, you're really this, this, this. You don't eat, man, you haven't even heard the half of it. You followed me around. If you got in here for a couple minutes, whoo, you wouldn't even be talking about that thing. And yet, and isn't it beautiful? There's a, a, an emulate, a, a life to be emulated, a blessed life when you're free from having to defend yourself from those things. Now, after all, you could, right? You could take a swing. At least for the, if you think about this perfect life as it's played out in the church, think of the one of the things that we, we really want to celebrate as a church even. is like people who throw temper tantrums to get their way, uh, first of all, they shouldn't get the toy in the toy aisle. Um, but they don't have any standing and this embassy of God's kingdom known as the church. The, people, the heroes, right, the heroes in our church are the people who serve meekly, humbly. They repent boldly, right? They, they confess sins that you and I are like, oh, I wouldn't say that. They're our heroes because we're like, man, that's, boy, they're free. Aren't they free in ways that we can't be? Those are the heroes. Those are the people we emulate, we congratulate even in this kingdom, Next, it says they hunger for righteousness. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Many scholars would say this is actually like the central point of these blessings. That in many ways it's a, a chiastic structure that climaxes at this central point where, where these characteristics of, of kind of emptiness and, and poverty climax at a hunger for a, a, an alien righteousness and then lead into ways of living out that, that spiritually blessed life. Whichever the case may be, it, it kind of serves as a turning point. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here's, here's the best way I know to say this. They're willing to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to long for it, because they know they don't have it in and of themselves. A blessed life is when you can long for righteousness because you know you don't have any that you bring to the table. Now, the same as meekness, this is not a word we use. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, righteousness, it's, it's a prominent theme. We, we looked at this in, in the Psalms. It's a prominent theme in the Old and New Testament. But in general, we don't use this word. 
In fact, the only way that we typically use this word is like a kind of a diminutive form that's not good. It's the phrase self-righteousness. Like we know what that is, right? Like if I said, name a self-righteous person, you're like, got it, right? <laughs> but if I said like, name a righteous person, you'd probably be like, well, what do you mean, right? Because it isn't something we think about or talk about. Well, in this case, it gives us a picture, a, a rightness, a right standing, a moral vitality in the presence of God. Now, we, we long for it, right? We're in a tough time in our own culture to determine what's right and wrong and to assert what's right and wrong. Man, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult time to discern and then to, to live out what's right and what's wrong. And yet, he says here that like, the true blessing comes from when, when you long for it, you hunger and thirst for it. What a, what a, what a broad way to say that. It's one thing to say I'm hungry. It's one thing to say I'm thirsty, right? It's another thing to be like, I am hungry and thirsty, right? What are you admitting? Now, this is hard for us because we are rarely hungry or thirsty, right? And I, I just mean that in terms of we have no shortage of grocery stores and, and or restaurants, right? So, like, this is going to be a foreign concept. But, but think in terms of if you were genuinely hungry and thirsty, you're saying I don't have what I need. That is, I don't have the righteousness in this case. I don't have the moral fortitude. I don't have the moral purity. I need it, and I long for it. And what does it say happens? They're the ones who get satisfaction. Again, if you're not a Christian and you hear that, like just think of the way how that is a paradox. The people who are really hungry and thirsty, those are the people who are really satisfied. What? No, that's not how that works. And yet we find here the blessed life, the truly, the life worth emulating is a life where you know your own need because you don't have righteousness in, in and of it yourself. Again, the best analogy is you know what self-righteousness looks like. Think of, this is a way of saying, congratulations for the people who are not, right? Congratulations when the people are like, man, I don't, I don't have any reason to boast or brag. Then he says, he lists three, kind of pile on top of each other, the blessing that comes from being merciful, what a beautiful life. People who are merciful because they know how merciful God has been to them. Then it says pure in heart. Literally, it means like uh, an in integral life, a life of integrity, right? A life of oneness or sameness, right? You know what a disintegrated look, life looks like, right? It looks like hypocrisy. It's disintegrated because you lack integrity. You're this way with these people and you're this way with those people. Ever been there? Ever seen that? But I act this way in this context, but I act this way in that context, right? You know what that feels like? Some of you feel it right now, right? And he said, the truly blessed life is when you're free to be the same person all the time. That's what purity looks like, to, be, to have righteousness and yet to, to know that you can be that no matter what. Blessed are those who are peacemakers, right? They don't have to divide and conquer to win. They have experienced the peace that God offers. They build bridges rather than walls. What a beautiful life. And lastly, the, those that are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. They just know, in that sense, they know how unsatisfying sin really is. And so they're willing to pay the price to do the right thing. To be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, there's, there's much to be said here. Uh, especially for our, kind of our modern ears. 
I think the Apostle Peter says it the best. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be, hear, hear the language of the Beatitudes again, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and yet do so with gentleness and respect. Do you hear it? Do you hear those blessings? Like, he's as, it's as if he's saying, hey, people are going to revile you, they're going to persecute you, and you can be gentle about it. Right? Just, again, that, that's not how we think. That's not the natural inclination of our hearts. If we're reviled and persecuted, our first, our first response is to fight back. But he says that in so doing, you'll have a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile you, they revile your good behavior in Christ, may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Right? And this is a, this is a profound saying for someone who experienced and even died because of real persecution. Maybe the best way to summarize it is this. Persecution is a really tricky word to talk about. Historically and biblically, it's defined in a way that we often don't use it. And all I would just add here is a, a perfect life is, is when you realize that persecution isn't the worst thing. And so you're, you're free to define it a little differently. So I'll just say really just broadly, um, being held responsible for your actions is not the same as persecution. Uh, right? Like you're not being persecuted because you're in trouble. Uh, you're not, like, if no one's actually trying to harm you, kill you, right, be easy with the word persecuted. That's all I'm saying. Just say, hey, they were really mean to me. That's true. That's not nice, right? Uh, but don't be like, I'm being persecuted. Like, there's a way to be persecuted for doing what's right and standing up for what's right, and there's a much more common way of being persecuted for just being a jerk. I don't have to say any more about that. It's not the same, right? Like, you can offend people, because you live a life of, that's above reproach, that serves as a rebuke. But even Peter says you can do so gently, respectfully, compellingly, persuasively, giving an account for why it is that you're way, the way you are. And then there's another way to experience hardship, because you're a punk. Make no mistake about it for Christians, right? The gospel is offensive. Every single week, like every single week I have to stand before you and tell you, you are so awful, so sinful, so depraved, so disgusting before the sight of God that a perfect, spotless, sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, had to die in your place so that you could even be in God's presence. And that's offensive. So let's stick with that. That's offensive enough. The other things that we offend people for, we could probably apologize, right? Don't apologize for the gospel, but probably apologize for being a punk, right? We'll move on, right? So there's this beautiful, moral, and perfect and pure life it's beautiful. And, and I, I want you to see, like, this is how these blessings are beautiful, but I also want you to see them for what they are. I want you to see how these blessings are awful, because these teachings of Jesus are perfect and impossible to obtain. Simultaneously, as you were walking through that list, right, you probably saw, oh, that sounds awesome. Here's one of the ways you know the, the Beatitudes, these blessings are beautiful, this is the life that you've been wishing all your friends would have been living the whole time you're around, right? This is the life you really wish other people would live, right? Like, man, wouldn't it be great to have a friend, 
you know, and friends that have this, like, list, oh, that's great. That's, man, they're meek, and they, everything I say, they, you know, they're, they're peaceful and kind and meek and humble. Oh, they're great. You see its moral beauty when you think about what it would look like in others, but, but you felt it maybe at the same time as we were walking through this list, all the ways that this beautiful, perfect life is something you'll never measure up to. It's crushing. Right? Would, any, I mean, would anyone be like, hey, would, uh, would the pure in heart please stand up? Right? Would anyone, like, who wants to go first in that one? Like, if no one knew you in the room, you might get away with it. Be like, oh, well, there they are. That's hey, the pure in heart guy, right? <laughs> but for the rest of us living in gracious community, like, that's a problem. That's a problem. Like, I'm, you know, I am the meekest one in the room. Like, you just, you, you just killed, that's, that's a, you can't, you, Right? And so these, these teachings are perfect and beautiful, but they're crushing. You can't live up to these. And so while I want you to see how these teachings are beautiful, I also want you to see how they're awful so that you will see how they are fulfilled and accomplished. Every one of these blessings and every one of these graces that comes with it, as paradoxical and otherworldly as they are, point us to the teacher himself. Every one of these things points us to what Jesus is like. In one sense, they're beautiful because Jesus redefines blessing and happiness and then what it is to be emulated and congratulated. Think of it this way. No one, no one ever sympathized with spiritual beggars more than Jesus. Glory to him for that. No one ever grieved over sin and felt its weight in a broken world more than Jesus. No one was more meek and submitting even to false accusations than Jesus. No one hungered or thirsted for righteousness more than Jesus. No one showed mercy to others, right? The one who had the power to call down angels, who instead from the cross says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. No one showed mercy like that. No one sought peace between God and man and, and peace between man and other man more than Jesus. And no one suffered more unjust persecution. There was only one truly innocent man that ever lived, and no one suffered persecution unjustly from evil more than Jesus. I want you to see how the Beatitudes, these blessings, are a picture of Jesus. They're a picture of who Jesus is and what it looks like to be in his kingdom. Remember I told you like that, that, word, that, that word blessing, it's hard to, to translate in many ways, it's the person we envy, the one we look up to. Maybe the better way to say it, it's the hero. And so there is truly a hero, someone we should congratulate. And these lists of blessings introduce us to him, and his name is Jesus. Because after all, who could live like this? I mean, it's beautiful, but I can't live like this. What good does a list of a perfect life do for me? Have you seen my life? Have you seen where we live? What good would it do me but that it stirs in us a hunger for what Jesus alone can give? So here's how we respond this morning. As is our custom, we celebrate what we call communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. We commemorate that Christ and his broken body paid a, 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 a payment, offered himself as a sacrifice that you and I could never offer. In his shed blood, we, we commemorate that by, by drinking of juice. Now, if you're in this room and you're, and you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, this is, this is where you get a chance to look on and just hear, maybe hear the message that we 
as, as we partake in this, are declaring a divine mystery that, that the body of Christ and his shed blood satisfies us deeply. Paul tells the Corinthians you shouldn't do that lightheartedly, and so here's why. Remember how this points us to Jesus? Remember how this is what we have in Christ? Remember I told you there's like a list? Think of like the list of all the, all the blessings, of the things that you'll be, and all the rewards that come. I want you to realize that that list on the left of all these things that you and I could never attain, Jesus completely did. So that all of those gifts that you and I could never earn, we have completely received. Some people see this list of blessings, this beatitudes, are things that we're to do. Right? People we that, that we can become, we can be these things because of what we do. And we have good news that the Beatitudes share with us. This is who we get to be because of what Christ has done. He was truly poor in spirit so that we would have the kingdom. He was emptied so that we could be filled. He withheld his power so that you and I would inherit God's kingdom. He humbled himself even to death so that you and I would receive mercy. He received no mercy, not from the crowds, not from Pontius Pilate, and not even the wrath of God upon sin, so that you and I would be adopted as sons and daughters of the Father. In a moment, we get to declare that mystery in communion. Let's pray together as we prepare for that. God, thank you so much. Thank you for these blessings. They truly are beautiful, and yet, Lord, they truly are unattainable. Unless you offer these blessings to us freely, there's no way we could earn them. We've already ruined that opportunity. And yet, thank you that these blessings are not things that we ultimately can fulfill on our own, but instead, these are the blessings that have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ on our behalf. For some in this room, maybe, maybe the prayer that they ought to cry out in their own words even now is, God, have mercy. Forgive me. Draw me near. Grant me comfort because of Christ. Lord, would you meet with them as only you can. Offer the congratulations, the, the, the joy and happiness and blessing that comes from knowing Jesus. Maybe for the rest of us, we've, we've, we see this and maybe at times we think that we can accomplish these things apart from you. Lord, renew us now. Remind us that these are the gifts, the new identities, the new characteristics, even the new congratulations that we have each day, every single morning because of what Christ has purchased for us. Thank you that he has paid the price to make this available for us. It's in his name we pray and receive all of these blessings. Amen.